What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. One of the things we all love about business stories are the humble beginnings. Like when two buddies go from tinkering in their Palo Alto garage to creating the world's most valuable company, Apple. Sometimes everyday events even inspire something remarkable. Like when a Swiss engineer takes a walk in the woods, marvels at the seeds that stick to his clothes, and ends up inventing Velcro. The story we're about to tell you is a little bit like those, and it culminates with a $3 trillion industry that's still growing. What's this we're talking about? The Exchange Traded Fund. We're going to trace how it came to be with some of the people who made it happen. We'll look at the state of things before it existed, find out where the spark came from, learn why the idea worked, and what it actually took for this financial tool to get where it is today. This is Trillions Presents, the ETF story. I'm Joel Weber, and I'm the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the course of the next six episodes, with the help of Eric Balchunas, who's an ETF expert and an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, we're going to document the story of the ETF. We'll hear from people who were there at the beginning. We'll also take you on a few field trips. But mostly, we'll be sharing the human stories behind an industry that's hoovering up trillions of dollars every year. So, this all really begins when the stock market crashes on October 19th, 1987. Black Monday. If you have been away from your television set and haven't heard about the stock market, this was it. The market declined approximately 23%. I think that everyone, every American at this stage of the game, needs to get their house in order. I'm not ready to jump out of a window. And it was a pretty, pretty sickening experience, uh, almost like are we at the apocalypse or precipice right now. Good evening, I'm Tom Brokaw. Black Monday is now in the books, and the question is, what will happen Tuesday and beyond? Even got a term, Black Monday. I mean, that, <laughs> that sounds like a horror movie. This, of course, is our resident ETF analyst, and for the purposes of this show, our historian, Eric Balchunas. The 1980s were a great decade for the American economy. Modern finance was coming into its own. Two cities were especially interesting. You had Chicago, where people were trading futures contracts of commodities like corn or oil, and New York, where you've got the stock exchanges and people trading equities. Well, the market had been going up for a while. Nothing goes up forever. <laughs> there was probably a sell-off that was going to happen anyway. So the conditions were ripe for a sell-off. And at the same time, you had a buildup of this hot thing called portfolio insurance, which was to use futures in order to hedge your stock position. This portfolio insurance was created by the firm Leland O'Brien Rubenstein to deal with the big crash of the 1970s. John O'Brien, who was part of the team that developed it, says portfolio insurance really started to take off once J.P. Morgan started doing it. But most people in Wall Street didn't understand what the heck it was. Some big uh, asset managers did. Some big broker-dealers did. 
And they realized when the market went down, portfolio insurance required selling stock and buying bonds. O'Brien says on the Friday before Black Monday, the market has its biggest drop since 1929. So all of us portfolio insurance folks had difficulty getting off enough sales of futures contracts to get down in the equity exposure to the level we should have had at the close of business on Friday, October 17th. A couple of the big brokers recognized this. So over the weekend, they went short U.S. stock market and foreign exchanges. And so when the stock market opened on Monday, October 19th, there was a big drop. And right away, portfolio insurers had to sell more futures contracts. And more of that got transmitted to the New York Stock Exchange. And the specialists on the exchange saw every major firm sending all of its runners to all of the posts selling all of the stocks in the S&P 500. And the specialists didn't understand that this was all a mechanical thing. And they thought, you know, World War III had broken out somewhere and they didn't know about it. So they just dropped all their bids and went to lunch or went to the doctor or went to the bathroom or just basically wouldn't trade. So the market just, you know, uh, collapsed. Uh, And it was all a mistake. A big mistake that now has to be cleaned up. In terms of a, a government official at the time, it was probably the scariest time in my 16 years at the SEC, that Monday and into Tuesday. This is Howard Kramer. During the crash, he was assistant director of the Division of Market Regulation at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC. I had oversight over all of the nation's securities exchanges, so that included both the stock exchanges and the options exchanges. He says he has a few sharp memories from that day. On the afternoon of the crash, Kramer went over to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission to talk about what was going on. Yeah, I pretty distinctly remember being in a room and, you know, as the stock market was tanking and thinking, you know, these these were commissioners who have experience mostly in agricultural products and futures. And here we are discussing what's happening with the stock market. Another one was being in with some other senior staffers and one of the commissioners coming down and trying to find out what was happening and then saying that uh, he needed to call the White House, so they needed to call the White House. So they uh, basically asked us to clear out of the room, <laughs> and, and I did. It was so bad that the SEC decided to make a task force and immediately for the next few months study what happened. And that's what they do in the form of a massive report called the 1987 October Market Break. David Ruder, who was the chairman of the SEC at the time, says the goal of the report was factual. The goal was to to say what had happened. The goal was not in advance to plan some result from the report, but the idea was to create a factual reconstruction of what happened and then to make suggestions based upon that report. And it was a long, arduous process. I'd say for the next three months through early January, a bunch of us had two jobs, which was, you know, investigating what happened and writing the report up and doing our day job. Did you get paid double for that? No. <laughs> no, we didn't get paid double. Uh, for, I'd say but from Thanksgiving to New Year's, the only day I took off was Christmas, uh, literally. My wife still remembers that. Um, 
no, it was uh, it was a pretty intense period. So this report ends up being 840 pages. It was uh, thicker than the Manhattan phone book for sure. It was, uh, you know, obviously we we sent a number of copies off to Congress. You know, it was available for a couple more years and eventually it became a collector's item. <laughs> I have two in my office. If anybody wants to bid for it, I'm ready to do it on eBay. Before Kramer could sell anything on eBay, we borrowed one of his copies to see it for ourselves. So it it says I the mean, October 1987 market break. It, it really is like a phone book. I mean, it, it's, it's that's the, exactly the, the feel. It's just, all right, Joel, I'm going to flip through it just so you get an idea of how big this is, right? See, this may take a few seconds. Hang in there. Still going. You're like halfway. There it is. Still going. That was not quite halfway. It gets more dramatic as you keep going. Wow. I see some charts. Wow. Let's hear it drop. (laughs) Take your pick of Harry Potter books. Two Harry Potter books side by side. That's about the dimensions we're talking about. Let me go more highbrow here. This is War and Peace squared. Ooh. Yeah. Nailed it. This thing... Like, my mom's five foot, and she has to use this, like, little thing in the car. This is like what you could use if you were, like, an 11-year-old and you stole your parents' car and you needed to see over the steering wheel. I mean, it literally could be used as, like, a booster seat. Yeah. Could you imagine reading this? I I will say the end's a lot of charts. Like, I think the last 200 pages is charts and numbers. But, I mean, there is a lot of stuff in here. Some footnotes, right? Yeah. And you're saying like one page of this is a huge piece of landscape here. I mean, it's a big, big. I'm also thinking somebody was on a typewriter doing this. Yeah. I mean, they had to be. Right. 1987. Oh. What would it take, Eric? This is a huge report. I, I can't imagine how long it would take you to read it. But what would it take you to be able to actually like plow through this? I would probably need illegal substances to get through this thing. <laughs> if not, okay, on the legal side, a, a lot of coffee, uh, a latte, and somewhere very quiet because the littlest distraction. Thinking latte, hold the milk. Anything that <laughs> a noise in the attic would be like, oh, let me go check that out because I am not <laughs> that. Yeah. Other to focus on that. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So, what was in this big report we've been gawking over? They just broke down what program trading was. They broke down what portfolio insurance was. They broke down what happened that day. That was the first part of the report. The second part gave suggestions about how a future crash could be avoided. But meanwhile, in downtown New York, you had the American Stock Exchange 
And this is an exchange that was in third place in trading. It, it had fallen down. The American Stock Exchange, which we'll call Amex from here on out, was basically an exchange that was looking for a winner. And that's where Nate Most and Steve Bloom were working together. These are market nerds, okay? These are not like salespeople. They're not they're not portfolio managers. They are they're into derivatives, they're into data, they're into the exchange. So these market nerds, Nathan Most and Stephen Bloom, are kind of an unusual pair. Most is 74 years old at the time, and he's the vice president of new development at Amex. And Bloom is just 27, fresh from Harvard with a PhD in economics. Nate died in 2004, but we found in our reporting that he made a big impression on those he worked with. Arthur Levitt, who was running Amex in the 1980s, says he was blessed to have inherited Nate Most, who at the time was trying to create products and trading mechanisms that would give Amex a competitive edge. And to the extent to which the ETF became a reality, I give 95% of the credit to Nate. I can remember saying to him that if this is something he believes in and wants to do, he has my full support to go ahead and do it. And Nate Most had this eclectic background. He'd served in the Navy as a submarine engineer during World War II. Afterward, he worked as a trader for Pacific Vegetable Oil and then became president of the Pacific Commodities Exchange for a time. Oh, he was great. He was wonderful. He was a a tall man, and he was kind of not very... He was kind of all shucks almost. This is Kathleen Moriarty, who played a major role on the legal side of the story and worked quite a bit with Nate Most. I remember one time I was at a meeting with him and some Goldman people, and these guys who were probably like in their 30s looked at Nate, and he had thick black glasses, and it was clear that they thought he was like somebody who didn't really know much of anything. So he went out to go to the men's room, and they looked at each other, and they said, oh, he's not a rocket scientist. And I said, actually, he is a rocket scientist. Yeah, he was literally a rocket scientist. The guy had a PhD in physics. And what's more... He's got the help of Stephen Bloom. And Steve was his assistant. Steve was much, you know, much younger. He was probably, you know, somewhere around my age at the time. And, you know, somebody who was, uh, you know, had a very sharp mind for numbers and did a lot of the um, assistance and kind of uh, secondary lifting for Nate. So they were a good team. They worked very well together. So you've got these two smart guys who have their work cut out for them in their roles at Amex, which, as Levitt puts it, The Amex was kind of, and had been kind of a backwater exchange, struggling for relevance and gradually losing listings to the New York Stock Exchange across the street. And no matter what we tried to do to compete against New York, the stature and status and prestige of New York managed to whittle away the listings that were the lifeblood of the exchange. Here's Kramer again. To stay relevant, it had to continue to develop new products, particularly new options products or or options-like products. Steve and Nate were behind that development initiative of the Amex. So this fit in pretty nicely into their sweet spot, i.e. trying to come up with a product to stay ahead of other competitors that may have some investor appeal. And what Kramer's referring to is a section in Chapter 3 of the Market Break Report with a suggestion for a market basket trading instrument that could be used instead of the futures to hedge and would be something that the SEC could regulate. So the Market Break Report makes its way to Amex. 
And most in Bloom read through the whole thing. Bloom calls it riveting. And one particular part especially caught his eye. When Bloom read that paragraph, you know, it was like a light bulb went off. You know, he told me that he ran into Nate Most office immediately and basically said, here's an opening we could drive a truck through. We didn't feel like it was a panacea to what we were trying to address, but we felt it was it was a novel idea. A panacea or not, Most and Bloom go with it. And Kramer says it's best that they or someone in the marketplace would take up the idea because it wasn't a regulatory proposal. So we were hoping that they would take the bait, so to speak, and and run with it, and uh, the Amex did. Next time on Trillions Presents, most in Bloom share their idea with maybe the most influential investor of all time, Jack Bogle. And I said, however, Nathan, Mr. Most, Nate, the proposal you sent me last week doesn't work. It has these three flaws. And you're going to have to get them fixed before you can ever do anything with it. Thanks for listening to Trillions Presents. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Trillions Presents is produced by Jordan Bell. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. Oh, one more tiny little thing. Here's an Easter egg for you. I have a question. When we send this back to him, would you buy it on eBay? No. I'm not that. I'm in deep, but I'm not that in deep. Mm. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.